Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to Crazy Money. I am your host, Paul Ollinger. I've got a great conversation to share with you today with my guests from Paris, Nick Kostov, and from Tokyo, Sean McLean. Nick and Sean are both reporters for the Wall Street Journal, and they are also co-authors of a new book called Boundless, The Rise and Fall and Escape of Carlos Ghosn. Well, who is Carlos Ghosn and why did he need to escape? I'm about to tell you that. So chill for a second. Here we go. Carlos Ghosn served simultaneously as the CEO of Nissan and chairman CEO of the French automaker Renault. After decades-long accomplishment-rich rise up the corporate ranks, Carlos was arrested in Japan for allegedly, allegedly now, paying himself tens of millions of dollars in unreported income. And he did some other uh, financial shenanigans, allegedly, that weren't totally legal. Here's where the story gets nutty. He eventually fled Japan's harsh judicial system and returned to Lebanon by hiding in an amplifier case, like a big square case that you would see a roadie roll up on stage at a rock concert. And they smuggled that case into a private jet that flew surreptitiously, mind you, from Japan to Istanbul and he eventually got to Lebanon. Now, since international arrest warrants are still outstanding for Carlos, he is likely to live out the rest of his life in Lebanon, which does not extradite its citizens. This story of a globetrotting CEO who speaks like four or five languages hiding in a box to get out of trouble is just bonkers. And the book, Boundless, by Nick and Sean, is a great read. You'll definitely want to hear this conversation and you want to check out the book, links to which are in the show notes. In this conversation, we discuss Carlos's unique family life and why his father was arrested for murder. Family tradition. Carlos's life as a young executive in Greenville, South Carolina, because when you think globetrotting CEO, you think Greenville, South Carolina. How and why Renault and Nissan got together in the first place. How and why Monsieur Ghosn found himself in the financial trouble that led to his downfall. The surprisingly brutal nature of the Japanese court system. This was an eye-opening thing I did not know about before I read the book. And lastly, and most incredibly, the details of his escape from Japan. Ladies and gentlemen, I know you're going to love this conversation with Nick Kostov and Sean McClain. Nick Kostov from Paris and Sean McLean from Tokyo, welcome to Crazy Money. Thanks for having us. Guys, you're the authors of a new book called Boundless, The Rise, Fall, and Escape of Carlos Ghosn, who was the CEO of both Renault and Nissan. Let's take his story in that order, The Rise, Fall, and Escape. First of all, his childhood. Carlos comes from a very colorful family. What was his childhood like? First of all, he was born in Portovelo, which is a tiny village in the depths of the Amazon rainforest in Brazil. So, you know, his uh, his granddad and his dad were successful there, but it's a village which had, you know, no paved roads, which was difficult to access from the rest of Brazil. I mean, it's, it was a tough, it's a tough, tough life, um, the life in Portovelo. So that's where he comes from. Why were they there? So they were there because his granddad was trying to get rich, basically, and um, he left Lebanon as a as a teenager. And some people went to you know California to pan for gold, and he went to the Amazon to because at the time it was booming because of the rubber trade. Um, and so there were like you know cars being built, Fords. People were, were buying their first cars, and so there, there was a big need for tire and for for sorry for rubber to make tires. And so people who went to the Amazon at the time were getting extremely rich. And so Bashara, who was going to Grandad, saw this opportunity and went with his wife to Portovelo. And so that's that's why the family was was there. When Gon was young, he was frequently ill, which a doctor um, basically said it was because of the, the the water wasn't clean in Portovelo, and so 
as a young boy, he moves back to Lebanon with his mum. And then, you know, he attends, they're, again, they're a very well-off family. His granddad did very well. And so he attends one of the best schools in Lebanon, certainly the most prestigious. But when he's just six years old, a tragedy basically hits the family because his dad, it's, it's a completely crazy story, but his dad is basically smuggling like, you know, various things, diamonds and whatnot across the border. And, and the guy who's doing this with him is a priest who's an old friend of his. And he, the priest does it under his cassock. And anyway, the two have a disagreement one day and the disagreement ends with the priest being dead um, with a bullet in his head and another in his side. And Carlos Ghosn's dad is convicted for the murder um, of this priest. And so he gets arrested at the airport and he gets put in jail in Beirut and he gets eventually convicted First of all, to he gets sentenced to death for this murder, and then the sentence get com- gets commuted to fifteen years in prison on on appeal because they ruled that actually the killing was an accident. He was just trying to scare the priest. He, he wasn't he wasn't trying to kill him. But anyway, th- this was obviously a hugely formative experience for for a young Carlos because at the age of six, you know, th- this is this was a huge story in Beirut. Enormous story. Obviously, the killing of a priest. There was like religious tensions at the time, and it was on the front page of all the newspapers. And so. For, for a young man like Carlos Ghosn, obviously something really tough, tough to go through. And he then grows up uh, without a father, essentially, who he visits in prison sometimes. But he's the man of the family. He's got three sisters. He's got his mom. He's got his grandma. And as I say, he goes to this. Uh, he is kind of protected in this cocoon of the, the school, which is Notre Dame de Jamour, which is um, extremely famous school in Lebanon, run by the Jesuit priests. And, you know, he is he grows to become an extremely talented student, very, very good from the age of about 14, 15. He's top of every, or he's fighting for the top spots in every class and extremely good at history, very good at maths. He's also got this rebellious side where he kind of like steals his mom's car and goes for joy rides around, you know, Beirut neighborhoods and whatnot. But that, you know, that was his childhood. So eventful childhood, I would say. Not boring anyway. And he eventually goes off What's that? Not boring at all. No. And, and uh, I wonder what kind of an effect it has when your father's arrested for, for murder at age six. Does he ever speak about this in, in any of his writings or interviews over the years? Yeah, it's amazing to the fact that, that, that this was not known for so long, given that the high profile that he had for decades. But I think one th- it's hard to tell as a result, like what impact his father's arrest had on him. But what is clear is that Carlos Ghosn always pointed to his grandfather's legacy as was his motivation, right? That sort of entrepreneurial spirit of dropping everything and, and setting up shop in the middle of the Amazonian jungle to make his fortune. Like that's the foundation of, of the Ghosn legend, the Ghosn family legend and what Ghosn always tried to live up to. I mean, his father rarely ever got a mention. And he eventually goes to the same prep school that was attended by some very high profile people, Charles de Gaulle, Christian Dior, people like that. What was his experience like in, in Paris? Yeah, so he goes to initially to a school called Stanislas, which, as you say, is, is very prestigious. Um, you know, his his experience in Paris is that Paris is very cold compared to Beirut. Like Beirut is a, a kind of warm blooded, <laughs> friendly and Parisians. I mean, I live here, so, but you know, not the friendliest, like very nice once you get to know them, but but tough, tough nuts to crack um, often. And so, yeah, he's, his experience is that that Paris is cold, people, French people are distant. And, and also academically, Stanislas is an extremely good school. And so he goes from being kind of top of the class and everybody respects his intellect to actually failing classes, which, which is an experience that a lot of people who go to these prep, prep schools go through. They go from being top of their class to suddenly being 
you know, struggling. And he was getting, you know, four out of 20 in, in, in math, which is like a, a terrible grade, not even close to passing. And so that, you know, initially very difficult in Paris, very difficult, but he sticks at it. He gets into probably one of the most prestigious kind of universities here, which you call the Grandes Écoles, which is Polytechnique. Started in the time of Napoleon Bonaparte. You know, the first time he tries to get in, he fails, which is very common. Most people, the first time they fail. So he goes back for another year to the prep school, Stanislas, gets in on the second attempt just and actually that's that's the hard thing once you're once you're in a polytechnique polytechnique is there to basically make the the, the masters of the french-speaking universe like there's you know many kind of captains of industry have gone there former presidents you know it's kind of like cream of the cream of the ivy league here um it's it's really really good so once you're in you're, you're okay you're on your way and so that's what going did and many of the students and the graduates of this institution go on into the french civil service and that is seen as sort of the prestigious route but but carlos went another way he went towards yeah. commerce what drove him to, to, to that end sean well i mean look i obviously it was in his blood i mean to a certain extent like he didn't have a choice right he wasn't a french citizen it's not like you can really join the civil service in the same way that a french citizen could but i mean he never really found the appeal of that route i mean going was always eager you know, in young adulthood, became eager to make his mark on the business world. You know, he was he was out there to live up to his grandfather's legacy. Yeah. One thing to add, I've actually asked him this question. And what, one of the things he says was ultimately he wanted to make more money. So he was pretty yeah. open. That the, the French civil service was not the way you were going to make money in life. So where does his career start? Uh, so his career starts. You guys just French... take these questions. <laughs> Whoever who, you can point <laughs> yeah, at each yeah. other or whatever, just to figure yeah, out who's yeah. the best yeah. person to answer these questions. Uh, look, yeah. we've been at this for three years. We kind of have like a mutual mind okay. about who should we, answer what well, questions. I'll ask, I'll certainly ask uh, Sean about Nissan and uh, uh, Nick yeah. about R- Renault. But uh, so, so, so where exactly. did he get his start? So he starts a French company, so I can take this question. But he, um, so he starts at Michelin, which is a, you know, big tire maker, obviously well known, including in the US. And that kind of squares the circle, I guess, with his grandfather's legacy and the, and the kind of going into the Amazon for, you know, during the rubber boom. And so he goes down to Clermont-Ferrand, which is a, which is a town in the middle of France, quite a long way away from Paris, actually, in, in, you know, around some mountains and whatnot, very quiet. And he begins to rise. Michelin is, is an interesting company because it's run along like very kind of paternalistic principles in that um, it runs the schools in the town, it runs the hospitals in the town, it, like people tend to go and work for Michelin and then they stay there for their entire career. You know, it owns the rugby team. And so, and, and everybody is treated in, in a kind of equal manner. So at the beginning, e- even the, the kind of polytechnic grads who are most likely at some point going to become the executive or going to run the company, they have to go and work on the factory floor. And so he's like, you know, rolling up rubber, slicing rubber, dicing rubber, like making the tires, basically, which um, which becomes very important later on because, you know, many CEOs don't have that that kind of hands-on experience in in plants that that Gone gets at this time. And so, you know, he begins to he begins to rise. The other thing to say is that Michelin at the time is expanding really, really quickly across the world. And so it's short on managers, and so they're making these battlefield promotions. So if you're good. You, you rise very quickly. And so by the age of 27, Gone is already in charge of a plant. I can't remember how many people he's in charge of, but I think it's it's substantial. He's in charge of like hundreds and hundreds of people at, at a very young age who are, who are old in him, you know, and at a factory that makes like these massive earth mover tires, tractor tires. And so his career... One of the youngest ever head of factory. Yeah, one of the youngest ever heads of a factory. And so his career just um, begins to take off from there. 
Um, the, the guy in charge is, is François Michelin, who owns and runs the company, and he starts to hear about Gone. He kind of asked the CFO at the time, who was a former Lazard McKinsey guy, to take Gone under his wing, teach him um, how to become an executive. And so Gone gets put on these various crises, and he, and he always does very well. He comes up with these solutions that maybe others don't uh, because they see, you know, reasons not to do something like culture or like we don't usually do this or in France we don't close factories or, you know, Gon doesn't really care about right. this. He just, he's very, very good at seeing black, white, what needs to be done, do this and forget the reasons not to do it. And so he becomes known pretty quickly for, for, for turning kind of desperate situations around and for me, like one of the one of the key key moves in his career is Michelin's basically, you know, expanded into Brazil uh, in the late seventies, early eighties, and at the time there's like enormous hyperinflation in Brazil, like to the point where you know people aren't even changing the the, the kind of prices on on um, on food products or whatnot. They've just got a kind of like color chart so that they don't have to keep changing it. I mean, I was talking to someone who was saying like he used to leave the hotel and when he come back to the minibar the, the prices are changed again and like the, the minibar prices <laughs> so anyway Michelin is losing all this money over there and thinking what should we do and Francois Michelin in the end sends a 31 year old Carlos Ghosn to turn it around so again 31 he's put in charge of a country and I think he's got about 10,000 workers under him at the time and so again, very, very young, very, very precocious, turns it around. And he pulls it off, right? Yeah, he's tested every time. And, yeah. and so we early early in his career, we see at, at Michelin or, or, or at the end of his career at Michelin, at the end of his stay at Michelin, we see uh, one of his personality traits, which is that he, he wants to be fully appreciated. He wants to be given the runway to go be the guy as opposed to being the number two or number three person inside these older, more staid companies. Even though they're growing fast, there's tradition at Michelin. And and he 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 wants to break out. So what does he do then? Break well, <laughs> breakout being an opt uh, an optimal word that we'll hear again in the in the future. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I can take this one. I mean, one thing, yeah, one thing that's that's important to note about Gone's time in the U.S. because after Brazil, he goes to head the the U.S. operations because of the nature of the beast. He becomes almost the CEO of a, an entire company there because it's just so big. It's also the first time where, where he really encounters American executive compensation. Right. So they they take over a U.S. tire maker and he sees that they're all making way more than he is. And he's making basically middle manager pay at a, at a U.S. company. This is Uniroyal, but right, that they took Uniroyal, over? Uniroyal Goodrich, yeah. Uh, and the other thing that he becomes exposed to is the heads of uh, American car companies. Right. So he's mixing with, you know, the likes of, you know, Ioka and, and, and Bob Lutz, just sort of legends of the automotive industry from this time. And he kind of sees how they live and how they're paid. And I was talking to one guy who who worked with them at the time, and he was saying that you know Gone would remark, you know, there, you know, there's a feudal system to the automotive industry. You know, the car makers are the lords, and we're we're the serfs here. And he really sort of felt that distance. And one thing that you know Nick sort of remarked about is the sort of structure of Michelin is that it's kind of it's a real family owned firm, and so Gone by far, no matter who you ask, the most talented executive in the Michelin uh, global, you know, sort of organization would normally have been a shoe in for the top job, but he's got to stand aside for the the scion of the Michelin family. And so there was a glass ceiling there for Carlos Ghosn. And it was just fortuitous that the, the, the head of Renault, the French car maker, 
needed a number two and came knocking. Before we jump into Renault, how we got to Renault, I want to point out that he's living, he, he, here's this Lebanese uh, uh, national who was born in Brazil, who went to a, a, a very prestigious French boarding school, is living in Greenville, South Carolina, which yep. is two hours uh, east of here. It is a very red state. And this is 40 years ago, right? Or 45 yep. years ago when it has, it, Greenville's a lovely little town now, a, a yep. bigger mid, mid-sized town. But back then it's kind of a small, very crisp very uh, provincial type of town how does this guy blend in with the with the good old boys in the in the very american management at this at this company i mean he doesn't that's the point <laughs> like i don't think Gone <laughs> ever really blended in i mean even in lebanon he was born in brazil right you know in france he wasn't french you know one of the few foreigners to attend those schools and you know I don't think Ghosn was ever in the inner circle of any society that he ever lived in. And Greenville, South Carolina is no exception. I mean, not only is are they distinctively foreign in a city that probably didn't have a whole lot of you know, sort of Middle Eastern population at the time, but, you know, he is the head of a major organization. His wife is driving around in a Mazda minivan while his friends are driving around in Porsches. You know, mm. he's just it's a clear distinction. And I don't think Gone was ever really bothered by it. Obviously, he was motivated by achieving, you know, sort of what what everybody else, you know, sort of above him had. But, you know, I think yeah. to a certain extent, like, Gone understood his position at Michelin was that he, he was not going to be paid as much as the big dogs and certainly as much as the car makers. And so eventually, you know, when he gets the opportunity to change that, he does. I think one, one other thing to add here... Um about Gone, which, you know, some, some people get, get the wrong idea about. Gone, I think, liked Greenville a lot because there, there, there are no distractions, yeah. right? That, he's, he's a family guy at heart. Um, he has his, his first kid, obviously, in, in Brazil, but then three more in Greenville. And these are very happy years for the Gone family where he's either at work or he's at home, and he does spend a lot of time with his children, and they have an extremely good relationship with their dad. And I, I know that if, if you speak to him, and, and also Rita, his, his wife at the time, they, they loved living in Greenville. Because going, yeah. even when he's at Renault, I mean, going and like rubbing shoulders with like the French establishment and, and like politicians and other, other CEOs and whatnot, that's not really his thing. He just wants to get in, get the work done, get out, and then enjoy the time with his family. So I think for him during those years, for what he was like, that suited him great. So Renault comes knocking. What kind of a company? What is what is Renault all about at the time? What year is this? And, and what does uh, what is the Renault corporate culture all about? Good, good question. Nick, you're probably best placed here. Yeah, great question. So the year is 1997 when Renault comes knocking. Renault in France is an iconic company partly well first of all you see Renaults absolutely everywhere like if I look outside of my street there's there's a ton of Renaults on that street so it's a bit like I guess GM Ford or whatever in the US Um, but also it's got this it's got this amazing history where you know Louis Renault who was the head of the company during the second world war got accused of like collaborating with the Nazis then died in jail and so the whole company was nationalized and so for many many years it's the property of the state and it's not a for-profit company. doesn't matter. It's not even called a company, actually. It's called a régie, which is like a kind of special word to describe what Renault does. And what Renault does is essentially make cars for the working classes, right? So you, you need cheap vehicles and you need um, the working classes to be able to afford them. And whether or not they make a profit is immaterial, right? 
And so this begins to change kind of in the 90s where Ghosn's predecessor, Luis Feiter, comes in and he starts to tackle some of the you know, more unproductive factories, some of the kind of, you know, he, he, he does want Renault to become a, a normal company. He wants them to expand around the world. Um, he wants to make a profit. I mean, the joke at the time in France was that you kind of paid for a car twice. You paid at the dealership and you paid in your income taxes. Schweitzer wants to put an end to this. And thus, <laughs> Did they make good cars? Did they, was it a quality product? I mean, it, I, I don't think it was a bad product for the French market. Yeah, they, they, they make good cars. The problem is they, they cost way too much to make, right? And so you, mm. you, you're, not, you're not turning a profit. And as I say, for many years, that's fine, as long as the state bank rolls you. But there comes a time when they decide to privatize it, and that's no longer fine. And so, you know, Schweitzer is very good at what, at, at, at what you know, certain things. Like, for example, he's, he's good strategically. He can think about which markets he wants to go into. He's very good at schmoozing in France with the political classes, the establishment, which is very important here. Um, but he's not so good at cutting costs. And so that's where he gets Carlos Ghosn, um, that he knows that Ghosn by this stage has, is getting a burgeoning reputation as a, as a highly impressive cost cutter. He's 42 years old. And so that's why Schweitzer decides to, to hire him. And they're an extremely weird couple. Um, Schweitzer's this kind of tall guy who's like, you know, I, th- I think his dad was an ambassador and he's, you know, very smooth. And Gon is this kind of short, obviously, guy from Lebanon, hard charging, like fire and ice, completely different. But they make, you know, they, yeah. make, a, they make a great team, actually. And Gon does great work at Renault. I mean, if I can go into just something quickly that he starts to do at Renault. At the time, Schweitzer decided that to, to break even within a few years, they needed to cut costs by 3,000 francs per car. And Gohn just comes in, tears this up and says, no, actually, we're going to do 8,000 francs. We're going to call it the 20 billion plan. And we're going to go way further than what you've been thinking you can do. And he's like, and I want to shut three plants. I would, I would, I, you know, I would tell you to shut three plants. Big, big in France to shut three plants. In the end, Schweitzer shuts one. And that earns Gohn the nickname Le Cost Killer because there's a huge um, fight. And not even in France, right? And not even in France, the plants in Belgium. But still, there's a huge hoo-ha in the press. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, so, you know, going gets to work cutting costs and renting. Do people see his value or are they wary of him? And, and when does it become apparent that this is the guy? I mean, I think people are wary of him in France because I think people are wary of, you know, executives in general particularly foreign executives and particularly executives who come in and just slash costs, which is essentially, that was Gohn's job. Like, you know, it was to come in and slash costs. So I think people at this stage are wary of him. The press, kind of like, it's his first time really being in the press, right? And, and so they're kind of having fun with this cost killer character. But very quickly, it kind of works. He delivers, um, or he and, and his lieutenant. So he, he, you know, he starts to like, promote kind of young managers throughout the company, give them more power. And they managed to deliver and they managed to build this pile of cash. And Renault is, is actually financially very, very healthy for once, right? I mean, this is, not, this is not a usual state of affairs. So it's like share prices going up, profits are going up. Um, everyone's pretty impressed. So how does he become the boss? And where does the idea to pair up with Nissan come? Well, I mean, look, you, you got to go back and remember that like this was a time of massive automotive consolidation. I mean, uh, if anybody of a certain age remembers the big Daimler Club Chrysler um, merger, right? And that kicked off a bunch of things. I mean, Ford was buying up foreign 
uh, car companies and everybody was going abroad looking for car companies to buy. Interestingly, uh, there's a bit of automotive history that's, that's worth noting that you know Japanese car makers like Nissan made a big name for themselves, particularly in the U.S. in like the 1970s during the huge gas price crisis there. But by the time we get to the late 90s, I mean, the roles have kind of reversed where U.S. car makers are strong again. And they're the ones with the deep pockets and the Japanese car makers and Asian car makers in general are really struggling. So Schweitzer has a, a ton of cash. He's looking for acquisitions himself. He tried to go after Volvo unsuccessfully and he's still got this cash burning a hole in his pockets. And they start looking at uh, a, a host of Japanese car makers who, like I said, are, are now struggling after you know several decades of, of success. And they zero in on uh, a couple of car makers, but Nissan being the sort of number one target because it was, frankly speaking, a basket case. You know, they <laughs> they had an incredible engineering. It was just the weirdest thing about Nissan at the time is that they had some of the best, you know, sort of engine and transmission engineers. And, you know, sort of anybody who drove, you know, a Nissan car would rave about its performance because they were just frankly over-engineered. You know, they pumped everything they had into, into sort of how these cars performed, but they looked like crap. You know, they were just sort of like understyled, you know, dated, you know, no, and they weren't really selling the cars that at, at the time American car makers wanted to buy. It was just a sort of their priorities were upside down and they they dug themselves a massive uh, $20 billion hole worth of debt financed uh, through some lax uh, bank loans uh, during what they called uh, the bubble era in Japan or the period of rapid rep, uh, growth in the in the post-war era, which was you know rapidly drawing to a clo close where they had a recession and then the credit markets dried up and suddenly Nissan found its sort of tap of easy credit uh, drying up at the worst possible time. So they were desperate. And that's what they sort of zeroed in on because uh, Renault uh, under Schweitzer, you know, as Nick talked about, was was privatizing. But, you know, in a time of of increasing globalization, you know, Renault was deeply aware of the fact that they were a, uh, you know, a European car maker, but really a French car maker, right? There, there was a limit to how far they could grow. And when you, especially when Daimler Chrysler happened, you're suddenly surrounded by these automotive giants that have scale that you'll never achieve. And the, the, the fear was that, that these automotive giants would just eat up your market share and that you would just be dried up. So Nissan is a very proud Japanese company, and they have yes. they have many suitors. Uh, and Renault isn't the most prestigious global auto brand, but that's who ends up being their their lifeline. How does how yeah. do these two companies compare? And how does nationalism or 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 national pride, I should say, play into to, to the success or, or lack thereof of a, of a partnership in this case? So Renault ends up uh, winning the right to buy a roughly one-third stake in in Nissan almost by process of elimination. So so Renault starts the negotiations to to do a tie-up uh, to buy a stake in, in Nissan. And pretty soon afterwards, Daimler Chrysler, who was incredibly aggressive in their expansion, not just stopping at Chrysler, also joined uh, the bidding war. And Renault suddenly found itself as a very distant second place in that negotiation where, you know, Nissan, again, as I mentioned, you know, very proud of their technical expertise, you know, looked over at Daimler and said, well, yeah, we'd love to work with the Mercedes engineers. And nobody particularly wanted to work with Renault. You know, Renault <laughs> had cash and that was about the only appeal in that in that situation. Mm -hmm. So 
So it wasn't until Daimler dropped out of the, out of the negotiations and Renault was the last one standing at the altar that uh, that that the deal went through. So so they have to be very Renault has to be very um, diplomatic in the way they approach this. It's not a it's not an acquisition. It's a partnership. Yes. And and when when Gone comes in, as much as he was sort of um, sus- people were suspicious of him when he came into France. It's even it's even that much more when he goes to Nissan. But uh, he he runs the playbook again, slashes costs, raises cash, creates a more efficient operation and is is a hero at, at Nissan. Right. No, I was just saying, like, the one thing to note about the, the Renault pitch is that they had Carlos Ghosn. And that was right. the one appealing thing about the pitch. And and he does, as you said, come into Nissan and he starts this cost cutting exercise that he'd done at Michelin in the U.S. and in Brazil. And he had the same thing he did at Renault. Um, the difference this time is he's working with Japanese colleagues at Nissan. And so he sets this ambitious target to wipe out the debt and to turn a profit in, in a couple of years and promising to resign in a year if he doesn't get it done. And Nissan not only succeeds in hitting all those targets, but does it ahead of schedule. And Gones always chalked this up to the fact that, that, you know, he told them they needed to do this and he gave them a deadline and they came back and said, actually, we can do it twice as fast as you think we can do it. So Carlos Gones almost found like the perfect colleagues for himself where, you know, he's the captain and the quarterback and issuing orders. And he's just got a team around him who who snaps their ink, their their heels and jumps to attention and gets it done. You know, they do whatever he says they should do. No questions asked and faster than he, he had planned. So it's, it's it's almost like a sort of a perfect marriage between Carlos Ghosn and Nissan, if not between Renault and Nissan, that he's found as sort of a, a core of of, of uh, colleagues that is uh, that is willing to do whatever he thinks is is the right thing to do. In just a minute or two, how does he become the CEO of both of these companies that are half a globe away from each other? Yeah, so essentially, Gone does, you know, as Sean says, Gone does Trojan's work in Nissan, does incredibly well. Um, Nissan is turned around super quickly, more quickly than, what, than, than anybody thinks. And the plan for Schweitzer was always to say, okay, we control Nissan. We have a controlling stake in the company. You run Nissan for a number of years whilst I finish up my CEO mandate at Renault. And then you come back to Renault and find someone else at Nissan. Okay, because Renault is the senior partner of, of this alliance. And so you should be running Renault. And this is the plan as Schweitzer understand it. Now, as Schweitzer's getting ready to retire in 2005, and in 2004, Gone says, well, actually, sorry, Nissan isn't ready. And the guy who I wanted to be my successor, actually, I don't trust him. So I want to stay at Nissan. You can stay at Renault. Schweitzer wants to get out. And so Gone says, well, if you want to leave, you can't leave Renault and make me leave Nissan. I, I'll, I'll run the two whilst I try and find someone else to run Nissan. And Schweitzer says, yes, okay, as long as this is a short-term arrangement. And so you have this short-term arrangement, quote-unquote, where he's running two companies 10,000 kilometers or 6,000 miles apart. But obviously Schweitzer now says, when I interviewed him, look, I was an idiot. Uh, he never intended to give up Nissan. I believed him. I shouldn't have believed him. And Schweitzer believes you know, he knows what he's talking about, um, that actually Gone was also making a, well, Gone was making a far larger paycheck at Nissan, right? At the time, it was not disclosed. You didn't have to disclose executive compensation at Nissan. When it comes back to Renault, obviously, this compensation has to be disclosed. He's making a French CEO salary. And so, right, now he's combining the two as, as head of both companies, which obviously is nice, but it's very difficult to give up that Nissan paycheck 
where he's probably getting like $20 million a year, roughly. And then take a French CEO paycheck where maybe he's getting two or three maximum million dollars a year. So Ghosn just combines the two and he gets a private jet and he basically divvies up his diary so that he's doing two weeks at Nissan, then two weeks at Renault, then two weeks at Nissan, then two weeks at Renault, which obviously is unheard of. Obviously, in hindsight, is completely impossible. But at the time, you thought, well, Carlos Ghosn, Superman, maybe he can do it. This is not leaving work at 6 p.m. in Greenville, South Carolina and being home for dinner. No. So it's all about the pay, right? It all comes down to the pay and Carlos's orientation towards his 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 worth in the market. When do things get sticky for him? How do we get to the point where his pay becomes an issue? Well, Japan passes a law uh, around the time of the global financial crisis that is going to mandate the disclosure of uh, individual executive compensation, board director compensation over above a million dollars. And of course, Gone is 20 times that amount. And he freaks out for a number of reasons. Uh, one, because he's always, since 2005, since he took over both jobs, you know, been on, under a lot of pressure to disclose how much he makes uh, at Nissan. And so he is worried for a number of reasons, but also within Nissan, he's worried that, you know, he is making well above what is it considered normal executive pay, even in Japan. You know, he makes several times what even the Toyota CEO makes. And the Toyota CEO is like twice as, you know, his company is like twice his size. So it's always going to be a hard conversation to Carlos Go for Carlos going to have. But the board had approved this compensation package. Yeah, of course. So it's well, not like he, he, up to this point, there's no games that have been played, really. No games have been played. One sort of point of clarification, what the board had approved is a a cap on the gross amount that all members of the board can make right so there is a pool of cash and that they and then they divested the responsibility for divvying up that cash to carlos gone so carlos gone essentially had the power to set his own compensation and for all his colleagues on the board and just reminder that in Japan at the time board directors and senior executives at the company are the same thing they didn't really have outside directors at that time so carlos gone had the right to set his own pay um and carlos gone was the only one that knew how much anybody at that level was paid so yes the board had approved the compensation but given carlos gone the right to determine that compensation so yeah it, there was an awareness of how much total was being paid, but not how much each individual person was made. But in the midst of the financial crisis, the government mandates disclosure. And so this is where things get sticky. Yeah. So Carlos Ghosn, uh, his solution to this problem, after trying a number of things to try to delay the law, his solution is to quietly take a 50% pay cut. And of course, it's kind of the worst kept secret at the time for anybody who can do simple arithmetic, right, where they disclose the previous year, the gross amount of compensation. And the next year, there's a big chunk missing from the gross compensation and, and Carlos, Ghosn's, Carlos Ghosn's pay is disclosed. So Carlos Ghosn uh, that year says, well, I made it just under $10 million. You know, just, And of course, is still the highest paid executive in Japan by a long shot and gets you know a great deal of flack for that. But the problem is, is that Carlos Ghosn took a 50% pay cut and Carlos Ghosn is not happy with having to take a 50% pay cut. It's not like his 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 responsibilities had diminished or he, what he considered his worth to the company had ever changed. And one thing that Nick and I should note for you about Carlos Ghosn is that 
money for him, he's not the sort of person that chases wealth because he wants to be wealthy. He chases wealth because it's an objective measure of one's worth and success, right? He refers to it as like the scorecard. You know, he right. measures the performance of his colleagues and executives based on sort of empirical and objective measurements. And one of those things is compensation. You do well, you get paid more. So Carlos Ghosn got paid $10 million that year. And looking across the, you know, sort of the, the Pacific Ocean, it is, it is uh, counterparts in Detroit or elsewhere in the world. And he's like, well, I'm making like half of what they make, but I am 10 times the executive they are. This isn't right. And co complicating that is a bet that he had made uh, based on the currency in which he is paid. Yeah. So he'd taken a 50% pay cut. And in the, when the, in the financial crisis, what happened was that uh, obviously, as we know now, credit markets dried up and Carlos Ghosn had uh, always wanted to be paid in dollars because all his expenses were in dollars. His kids were in college in the US. He had houses and properties and investments all around the world. And the yen is in a highly volatile currency, like up and down all the time. And to sort of stabilize his earnings, he had bought into a, uh, you know, sort of a currency swap agreement with a Japanese bank that uh, you know, sort of allowed it to stabilize how much he was earning in dollars. But the problem is during the crisis, you know, the yen went the wrong way, which meant that the bank was buying dollars at a loss. And at the same time, the value of uh, his Nissan shares that he used as collaterals tanked by 80%. So suddenly the bank came calling for about $20 million in, in, in extra uh, collateral to, to keep the position open. Uh, which Carlos Ghosn might have had available, but what didn't have easy access to. And so he went scrambling for about $20 million worth of cash, which is what uh, sort of gets him into trouble down the line. And the other thing to note about the 50% pay cut, just to sort of back up for one second, is that Carlos Ghosn never gave up on that idea of, of the fact that he made, you know, sort of he cut his pay by half and starts working with a number of Nissan executives, including one named Greg Kelly, who got arrested alongside him to figure out ways to sort of get paid that money back. And briefly, can you describe a couple of the schemes that he came up with to uh, get him his money? Yeah, there were a number of them that never really came to fruition. But an early one was to use uh, what's called Renault Nissan BV, which was a uh, Netherlands-based uh, organization that sort of sits on top of the alliance as a sort of uh, corporate structure for managing the alliance. Members of Renault and members of Nissan, including Carlos Ghosn, have a sort of seat in that company to discuss alliance issues. So the idea was to use this company to pay Ghosn a salary. And because it was what they call an unconsolidated subsidiary of Nissan under Nissan under Japanese regulations, it wouldn't have had to be disclosed. But they ran into a number of issues and none of these uh, None of these sort of plans ever came to fruition. And he had a, and he also had another uh, a friend in Oman that was uh, providing kickbacks for him for, from from the dealership there, right? Yeah. So the the first thing to say about the the, the kickbacks is that obviously Gone denies this completely um, and says that um, that it's not true. But but this is this is now what prosecutors. Um, well, first of all, what in Japan he's charged for. Um, so prosecutors in Japan obviously believe this happened. And France has recently issued an international arrest warrant for this. So prosecutors here also believe... Just a few months ago, right? Just a few months ago, exactly. And so what, what happens here is that... So if we go back to the swap agreement that Sean was talking about, Ghosn is um, scrambling around for $20 million to give to, give to, to the bank uh, as extra collateral. And one of the people he taps is, is a guy called Suhao Bawan. Suhao Bawan is an Omani billionaire, totally, totally self-made, you know, more or less illiterate, but 
started at the very bottom, built this this huge business empire. And part of his business empire, part of what he did was to sell Renault and Nissan cars in Oman, but then also in other countries, Saudi Arabia, Iraq, Iran for a while. So so Suhail Bawan and Carlos Ghosn become friends. Suhail Bawan is the kind of personality that Ghosn really respects, comes from nothing, built built huge wealth. Um, and the two, obviously, Suhail Bawan is, is hugely impressed with Ghosn, a rare kind of Arabic speaking CEO, um, you know, huge celebrity in Japan. And so the two of them start a, start a friendship. And at the time of Ghosn's kind of search for money, Suhail Bawan lends him uh, $20 million, you know, and they write a, a loan agreement to, you know, signed by Carlos Ghosn and by his wife, Rita. It's supposed to be a two-year loan, although Ghosn um, has admitted to French law enforcement that he still hasn't paid back that loan. Um, but anyway, he gets $20 million from Suhar Bawan, is able to take back the swap agreement. And this is how the financial relationship between the two start. And shortly thereafter, what starts to happen is that Ghosn, as CEO of Nissan and as CEO of Renault, he has a budget line called the CEO reserve. And if he wants to you know, send money around the empire for whatever reason quickly, um, and with just a few signatures, he uses this budget line called the CEO reserve. So if there's been like, let's say a hurricane or whatever, and you need to fix the office, you can use the CEO reserve budget line and, and send some money. And he starts to send, using the CEO reserve budget line from Renault and from Nissan, monies into the Omani dealership. And he sends roughly $50 million between 2012 and 2018. At the same time, between 2012 and 2018, $50 million, roughly, ends up going from two people, so Suhar Bawan and the general manager of this dealership, into entities controlled by Ghosn. And so what prosecutors believe is that um, the CEO reserve bonuses were in fact dodgy bonuses from Renault and Nissan, that there was no reason for them, and that Ghosn was getting them as kickback and um, and what he did with him was invest in startups um, and buy himself a yacht. So every good financial crime story has to have a yacht. As one, as one does, as one does. Every good story like this needs a yacht. Sure. <laughs> if I could sort of just sort of interject for a second, I think one sort of misconception Nick and I often run into when we talk to people about the Carlos Ghosn story is a lot of people, including Carlos Ghosn himself, focus on the criminality or alleged criminality of his actions, right? Whether or not it was a kickback, whether or not he stole money. Um, and to Nick and I, it's almost beside the point, right? Because who knows? But And who knows what a judge or a jury would decide? I think it's not, it's not beside the point, but I think there's I think there's a second point which which you're about to make. I do think the criminality. Right, there's a second. Okay, fine, fair enough. Yeah, the criminality obviously matters, but yeah, I think at least personally, I think the bigger point is that Carlos Ghosn thought it was okay to take twenty million dollars from a guy with whom he had a business relationship with, and essentially set up a second business with this guy in a in a, in a personal capacity, and thought that was okay. Right, there was sort of a lack of oversight and a lack of judgment. And it sort of just betrays a sort of thinking on Carlos Ghosn's part about his position within the company that he would decide to do this and think it was okay. And I think that's probably the more telling aspect of this tale. So when do things start to get dodgy for him with with Japanese officials? Well, uh, things start to get dodgy with him with Japanese officials when people discover that he'd been doing this within Nissan. And this was right around the time where Carlos Ghosn is getting to the end of his career at Nissan. 
uh, at least as CEO, and he's stepping back. He's he's in Japan a lot less. You know, the sort of the part time roles of, of the dual CEO uh, are are skewing more and more towards Europe and less and less towards Japan. And that's probably there's a, there's a good rationale in his brain while he was doing this. But in in Japan, how it's perceived is well, he is less of our guy, and yet we're paying him all this cash. What's going on? And then what really sort of tips you know, the scale against Gone is when they start talking, you know, there's rumors flying about a merger between Renault and Nissan. And obviously that had always been in the background since the alliance was formed in 1999. But the promise at the beginning was that it's a different sort of automotive partnership. And Carlos Ghosn for years was very publicly and vehemently opposed to the idea of a merger saying it doesn't work. How could I possibly join together a Japanese, a quintessentially Japanese and a quintessentially French organization? But suddenly his tune seems to change. He starts to talk about you know, shareholder desires and, you know, the, the interests of all the different stakeholders. And we have to examine all the things on the table. And there starts to be, you know, sort of unsort, you know, sort of unnamed sources and in, in news articles around the world saying that a merger is being planned and a merger was being planned. Gohn was working actively with people at Renault and Nissan to plan a merger. And so a group of Nissan executives are motivated to start looking into rumors about Carlos Ghosn's improprieties out of a desire to stop the merger. Mm. And it's it starts with concerns about a another Dutch-based entity owned by Nissan that had been set up as a uh, investment fund for Silicon Valley. And they have something in Japan called a statutory auditor, which is a sort of quasi board member who reports to shareholders and whose job is to hold board members and executive senior executives to account. And he starts digging into this investment fund that nobody could get any information out of and hadn't made a, an investment. And what he finds is that the investment fund had been used to purchase uh, homes uh, for Carlos Ghosn's use in, in, in Lebanon and Brazil where Nissan doesn't really have much of a presence. And not only that, these homes are worth several million dollars. And not only that, they don't really look like corporate housing. They look like personal homes for Carlos Ghosn. And it, what they find just kind of snowballs, you know, the houses, they find the fact that Carlos Ghosn had taken the 50% pay cut and had been working on a number of ways to pay himself in secret. And they find just like a, a, a host of things, big and small. And what the statutory auditor uh, does is, is something that had just huge consequences for Carlos Ghosn and Nissan in this whole story where he unilaterally decides to take this to prosecutors instead of the board of directors. And once he does that, it kind of ties the hands of everybody involved. Once law enforcement gets involved, then they swear him to secrecy and they just start the secret investigation on behalf of law enforcement within Nissan to, to sort of apprehend Carlos Ghosn. And here's something I learned in this incredibly well-researched and enjoyable book, by the way, guys, I loved reading it, but I didn't know anything about the Japanese criminal system and learning what I learned does not make me want to commit a crime in Japan. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about, about how prosecutions work in Japan. So it's a, uh, it is an undeniably harsh system. Bail is uh, rarely given before trial and certainly rarely given in a contested case. So there is a, a lot of criticism, uh, of the system and those who criticize it often refer to it as the hostage hostage justice system. And certainly Gohn has, has made that allegation. And the allegation is that they withhold bail unless you confess as a way to compel a confession. 
And, and there is something to that argument in, in that the conditions that under which Gone was held for over 100 days was quite harsh. You're held in solitary confinement. The rules almost infantilize the, the inmate and in that you're made to sit in a certain position like L-shaped on the floor, you know, as an anti-suicide measure. So, you know, guards can easily check in on you. But it, what it means is you've got to sit motionless all day and you, and you rarely leave your cell. You get like maybe a half an hour on the roof for exercise. Um, and it's just a harsh, harsh system. And the interrogations were like 12 hours a day with no defense lawyers with, present. Right. With no defense, with no defense attorney present. And 99% of prosecution cases yes. are guilty. Become that, that's that, that, that sounds uh, suspiciously uh, like a suspiciously good win loss record. It is very high. And, and certainly you, you, it is not uh, hard to imagine how the harsh conditions there would encourage people to plead guilty in order to have it stop because the penalties um, are often uh, light compared to whatever the maximum uh, penalties are. So, you know, Greg Kelly was, uh, who was arrested alongside Gone and went to trial, was facing 15 years in jail and he got uh, a suspended sentence in the end of it. Um, so, so Gone comes back into comes flies back into Tokyo, as I recall, right? And then Correct. prosecutors grab him and and t bring him into this this harsh system. And he is he's he's kept away from his family. He's kept away from his work. What uh, what are his prospects at this point? And how does he even get to the point where he gets bail? Uh, well, he gets bail by hiring a fresh legal team who 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 managed to work with uh, prosecutors to come up with a set of conditions. I mean, in Japan, the other thing you don't have is like, it's not you can wear an ankle monitoring bracelet. It's almost like the, the honor system on bail. And it's part of the problem why prosecutors and judges don't want to give bail because, you know, they don't have any real way to track your whereabouts. Um, so go and agrees, for example, to spend all day at his lawyer's office and his lawyer to log all his phone calls and who visits him and things like that. Um, but he eventually gets bailed that way uh, by agreeing to some harsh conditions. And in, in, in fact, on the second time he receives bail, he, he, he agrees never to speak to his wife, basically. And, yeah. And just to, 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 to pop in here as well, I think like one of the other reasons he did get jail was because as, as you, you, you made the point that we all kind of discovered the Japanese justice system through the Gone case. And yes. after 108 days wow. of um, being in jail, you know, at the beginning, as you said, well, his family couldn't visit. We, we couldn't we couldn't get to any representative to go and to even tell us if he contested the charges. Like it, it was like a, a big scoop yeah. when finally it came out that, that Gone had said he was that he felt he was innocent. And this was like days into the whole thing. So the guy just like fell off the face of the earth. And there's this big, there is an international outcry at this stage, like the UN has issued, a, has kind of rebuked Japan and, you know, Gone's wife is going on TV everywhere, kind of decrying the conditions. And I think in the end, the pressure does tell and they, they give him bail. And actually, when they give him bail, I mean, this is neither here nor there, but it's one of the kind of funnier episodes of, of, of the Gone story when he, um, when he leaves like dressed as a worker because he doesn't want like the press to follow him and he gets into like this little kind of worker van <laughs> and obviously it doesn't work at all because you can really tell who he is it's not the best disguise in the world but anyway like after 108 days he walks out and i think that i, I really do think that this pressure in the end they, they they kind of had to give him bail so his options at this point as a as, as a human being are to stand trial and and roll those dice or to try to do something heroic and what he does boggles the imagination for the way CEOs conduct themselves. 
even in the craziest circumstances. It is crazy. And, and the one thing, the sort of one point of context to understand about where Carlos Ghosn was in a state of mind, right? Obviously, he was in this system that, you know, Carlos Ghosn is the ultimate communicator, right? Carlos Ghosn always felt that, like, if any argument needs to be made, any sort of marketing for the companies he represented needed to be made, Carlos Ghosn was the best place because he could just communicate the message. And suddenly he shut up. You know, you can't, he can't say anything. And on top of that, he's facing these odds of over 99% conviction rates. And even more than that, the process takes forever. It took three years for the first verdict to come out on the whole, you know, compensation cut thing, which was the easy part, right? And then you've got the Oman stuff coming out, which was going to happen afterwards. And then you've got Saudi stuff coming out. And so he was looking at like, 10 years of a legal process as a 65-year-old man. And so Carlos Ghosn figured he might die in Japan, win, lose, or draw. And, and even if he gets out of Japan, then there's France to deal with, right? And then there's the United yeah. States. There's all he, He's doing business in many different legal jurisdictions all over the planet. So he's got he, he, his prospects for living a, a leisurely old age are not looking good at this point. They're not looking good. And for a normal human being that's not Carlos Ghosn, maybe you or I would sort of see this sort of thing and we'd be powerless, right? We'd, we would have to accept that we have a 10-year legal ahead of, you know, fight ahead of us. And this is the rest of our life. Carlos Ghosn was never one to see the reasons why he can't live his life the way he wants to. And he would see, okay, what's the solution? And in this solution was to get out of Japan by hiring a guy. Yeah, just one very quick point of context. In, because obviously Ghosn goes from, look, I'm going to fight these charges and I'm going to win. And at the beginning, what he's arrested for, basically paperwork violation, is what um, Sean was talking about earlier, that he's kind of trying to figure out um, how do I make back this 50% pay cut that I took? Do I take, you know, some kind of consultancy agreement after retirement to stay on? Or And so this is what, yeah. um, th these are the charges. And it's frankly, looking from the outside, not that serious. Once um, the prosecutors yeah. um, get their hands on a, on a hard drive, they actually find this hard well, Lawyers working for Nissan pick up a hard drive in Beirut, which happens to have all of his late lawyers' emails and communications, and which kind of detailed this alleged money flow from Renault and Nissan to Oman and into Ghosn's pocket. And at this stage, he gets arrested for a second time and charged on the Oman charges. And when he gets out on bail a second time, that's when he starts planning his escape almost straight away. And he yep. never, at the beginning, yep. he is answering the prosecutor's questions, right? On, on the kind of deferred compensation stuff. He's, he's trying to explain what he was thinking, what he was doing. On the Oman stuff, he chooses to remain silent. He does not say anything. Even when a French judge went to Beirut I guess it would have been 18 months ago now, a couple of years ago now. Um, Gone had originally said he would answer questions, but does not answer the questions on Oman. Says that, you know, the stuff on the hard drive was obtained illegally and that he doesn't want to talk about it. And so at this stage, he decides my best chance is to get out of Japan. Yeah. And just to reiterate on the charges, like the first set of charges about the pay was an allegation that Carlos Ghosn had deferred a portion of his compensation that he hadn't received, right? So he's he's charged with understating compensation, about $80 million worth of compensation that he never received, that he's that the allegation that that he intended to receive it. Right. So it's a it's a weird sort of charge uh, that really is only a crime in a place like Japan. But the stuff on Oman looks like theft. And that's where they find all this stuff on the hard drive. This is where we find out about the yacht, about the $20 million going into Carlos Ghosn's 
uh, sorry, $50 million going into Carlos Ghosn's pocket and the investments into Silicon Valley, all of that stuff, like there's just like a host more smoke coming out of that pile. Okay, so I'm in Tokyo, I'm out on bail. Do I just Google uh, how to smuggle myself out of Japan? Do I mean, where do I, how do I get the A-team to come to my rescue? You know, how does B.A. Baracus roll up in the van and smuggle me out of this society? Yeah, as you say, so Carlos Ghosn is desperate at this time. He's, he's facing extremely long odds. On top of that, he's not allowed to speak to his wife. That's one of the bail conditions. So everybody in the Ghosn camp is completely desperate. And they're trying to think, okay, what can we do here? What can we do? And there is, you know, there is this guy called Michael Taylor. Um, Michael Taylor is a former Green Beret. He has very strong links to Lebanon. He's married to a Lebanese, to a Lebanese woman. He served in Lebanon for the U.S. Army. And Mike Taylor is actually known, you know, for partly for rescues, right? So there was this uh, New York Times reporter, for example, who was um, being held hostage by the Taliban, and Michael Taylor worked on that um, worked on that rescue. That's public information. He's also brought back a couple of kids who were American children who were abducted, to, taken to the Middle East, and whatnot. And so one day at this dinner, um, there's one of kind of Gone and Carol's friends. Um, who says, wait, hang on a minute, why didn't, why didn't we think of Mike Taylor? Um, and so they kind of get in touch with Mike Taylor. They tell him about all of the tough conditions that, that Gone is, is under that we've been talking about in a Japanese jail, his, the long odds, the fact he can't see his wife. And Mike Taylor feels strongly that, that Gone is being wronged. And so he begins to work on this escape. He meets with Carol Gone's wife several times in Beirut, and he starts to just you know, work through it. I mean, there's, there's like essentially two ways out of Japan, right? One's by sea, one's by air. Um, and he starts to come up with a plan. What, and what does the plan look like? I mean, the details are, are bananas. They, they are B-A-N-A-N-N-S, as uh, I think I'm out of smell bananas, but they're bananas. Yeah. I mean, so there's, there's a few plans that don't happen, which are also bananas. One of them is like getting him in, inside a cargo ship and getting him over to Thailand and then getting him on a plane. And so they're looking at that. They've They've kind of got him a Swedish passport, um, which actually I, I managed to look into. I found that Swedish passport is, is really shoddily done. But anyway, so they, they, they're, look, they're looking around. They're, they're trying to come up with an idea. And in the end, they decide that, look, by air is the best way. Because if you do the whole Thailand plan, um, you still have to get on a plane. You still have to cross a border. So let's just cross the border straight away. They look at commercial airlines. And actually, Mike Taylor has done some work in, in um, private, in kind of, like various airports he's done the airport security in his time and he knows that like private jet terminals in general the security is is pretty lax actually you know for example during the go and escape they they have a questionnaire saying would you like security basically on your on your plane would you like your bags to be checked and they check and they check no i guess most people who fly private jet are not going to blow up their own plane so you know the risk isn't there and so mike taylor starts to look around and um he's got this old friend, a uh, militiaman called George Zayek, um, who actually travels to Japan a couple of times to kind of scout out various locations. And together they settle on this pretty new kind of private jet terminal in, uh, in, an, in, in an airport in Osaka. So they, they figure that the ones in Tokyo are too busy. They find this Osaka airport. And the plan is basically, okay, we are going to smuggle, we are going to stick going in a music box. We're going to pose as musicians. And we're just going to wheel him past security and we're going to put him on the private jet flight. We're going to get him to Turkey and then over to Lebanon, which doesn't extradite its citizens. And what I will say about that plan is that it's, it's genius in its simplicity. 
it's so simple, right? They, and and <laughs> Taylor's pretty good at that. And they, um, you know, they don't overcomplicate it. They they find a music box. So it's they, it's it's like a big black amplifier case that you would exactly. see a roadie unpacking yeah, from exactly. a truck onto the backstage area for for a rock band or something. Yeah. So basically, yeah, they they basically they buy this this roadie case in Beirut. They drill seventy holes in the bottom to make sure that gun can breathe. Um, and then they fly over to Dubai with this case. And uh, Michael Taylor feels that it's very important that they carry a musical instrument also to give an optic so that when people see the cases, they think, ah, you know, musical <laughs> equipment. It, it must be musical equipment. And they just leave it. Right. And so in Dubai, they go into this music shop and he asks for like the most expensive guitar case and the cheapest guitar. Um, so the people in the shop are like relatively confused as to why the case costs more than the guitar. But as Michael Taylor says, there is method method to his madness. And so he, you know, buys this guitar and they fly over to Japan and they basically tell the airport workers, we're here as violinists. So obviously the, the one of the airport workers said in, in, her, in her police statement that she thought it was incredibly strange that um, violinists were carrying a, a guitar case. But anyway, no, nobody raises an alarm. Um, and so they land, um, you know, ready to pull off the, the operation. So Carlos Ghosn, uh, multi-decade long CEO, multi-deca, multi-centimillionaire, suave, sophisticated, global, multilinguist, <laughs> gets in a box, goes down an elevator in a hotel and gets in a car and goes to a private airport. Yeah. And there's just there's so much about the story is just so great. And that, you know, Nick and I have turned up in, in details and there's just this moment when they're they get through the hard part, like the nerve wracking part of like getting it through airport security, making sure it's not scanned, getting it on the conveyor belt into the back of the Bombardier Global Express, and then the the box gets stuck, you know, <laughs> within inches of like of, of like getting into this airplane. And you have like Mike Taylor again. Remember the guy who's pretending to be a concert violinist who's really a green beret, the ex green beret with the with the buzz cut who who looks like. He, He's no Yo-Yo Ma. He's no Yo-Yo Ma. And he's back in the plane with like five other like Japanese baggage handlers on the other side, instructing these guys, you know, drill sergeant type, how to lift this box containing gone like into the plane. It's just like, you couldn't make this stuff up. It's just. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say one thing to note is that his, his, um, his other helper, George Zayek, is like deaf in one ear, like riddled with bullets and kind of like walks with a limp just from all his kind of injuries on the battlefield. <laughs> And so, you know, the kind of concert yeah. violinist is uh, has to turn his head so that so that he can so that he can hear what people say. But to, to pick it up from what what you said, so only a high degree of polite credulity allowed this thing to pull off. You know, like so they get him on. So they get him on the plane. They tell the pilots, "Leave the door closed. Don't come back here." Apparently, they're not allowed to use the bathroom between uh, Tokyo and, and Dubai. And and they let Carlos out and have a have a toast somewhere over Asia. Yeah, and then yeah, land exactly. in Istanbul, where Carlos go. Oh, Istanbul, right, right, right. Yeah. Istanbul, not Dubai. Yeah, they land in Istanbul, and Carlos Ghosn is now a surprise extra passenger on this plane and is uh, escorted to a second plane uh, where he then gets to Lebanon. And Lebanon's important because he's a citizen and they do not extradite their own citizens to any other to, to any other country. So no Japan, no France, no the United States. So he is essentially lost in Lebanon uh, in perpetuity. One interesting thing about Carlos Ghosn is that he's always been a history buff. Right. So Carlos Ghosn um, grew up on the stories of great men and of, of history. And 
not sort of like your Ulysses or or sort of Hercules stories, but you know Napoleon and Caesar and Alexander the Great. Th- those were his idols, and there is a great deal of irony that uh, that Carlos Ghosn has sort of end- ended his life resembling you know one of his great uh, idols, Napoleon, where he's basically stuck in a gilded exile in Lebanon for the basically probably the rest of his life. Nick, you had you had a cappuccino with him. Was that last year? <laughs> I think it was an espresso, actually. To be fair, but um. Yeah. Oh, okay. We, <laughs> Sorry, I don't. Um, yeah, we had an espresso so last year. Yeah, and um, you know, just asking him about his what's new he like? Life. What's what's his state of mind? Yeah. So his state of mind is, um, you know, that the escape was for sure worth it. Like, obviously, there's not no. He hasn't gone back to his old life, and what he would like to do is be able to fly to um, to the US. He would like to be able to fly to France. He would like to resume his old life, teach at universities. And, and do what he used to do. At the same time, what he's doing now, I mean, he's living in a, in a, you know, 17, 18 million dollar mansion, which was bought for him by Nissan, and which in fact, they're trying to evict him from, but so far have been unsuccessful. But I mean, his, his life in Lebanon um, is, is okay, right? It's not his old life, but, um, but it's not a Japanese jail. And so, you know, he tells me that he's very happy. He's spending time with his wife. Um, he loves to play bridge. Um, he is helping out a local university where he runs a management course. And so, at least to me, he says um, that he's he's content and that, you know, he's living out a, a comfortable retirement in his kind of ancestral homeland. The, the other thing which he which he's still very, very clear when you spend any time with him is that he's still incredibly bitter about everything that's happened. And he still feels very, Mm. very strongly that he is innocent, that he has been wronged, and that he wants to get this red notice rescinded. He feels like this was all a set up a plot by vindicative Nissan individuals, and that the United Nations um, has the, or, or I guess Interpol has the power to rescind his red notice if they come to the conclusion that, that the red notice was was put on him for political reasons. And I think the, the red notice for him is one thing, and he's particularly sad that he can't see, for example, his mum, who he has a very, very close bond with and who's in Brazil and who's very ill. Um, but it's also there's also a red notice from the Japanese on, on Carol Gohn, his wife, who helped with the escape, and he's extremely bitter about that. And, um, and he would like her to be able to travel to the US to see her kids and to resume her old life. Obviously, she can't do that. And so... You know, when you when you talk about this, like seriously, his eyes narrow, and he is he's he's seriously angry about it still to to this day, and he feels or at least mm. says that he feels like he's he's done nothing wrong, and this is totally totally unfair. What's his tragic flaw? <laughs> Hubris. <laughs> I mean, like I, it sounds cliched, but like you know, ultimately, like there's there's something larger than life about Carlos going, obviously, but there is just there's a point in Carlos Ghosn's life where he starts believing the legend and, and, and the PR about him. Right. So Carlos Ghosn was, was the Superman CEO who could do no wrong and who could do the impossible, like running two companies simultaneously separated by half the globe. And, and, you know, what's come out through Nick and I's reporting on this book is that, you know, there was a lot of, hand waving and and sort of theater around the Gone legend. But the problem is like Gone lost sight of that, right? He sort of reached the upper echelons of the automotive industry and the the corporate world and discovered, you know, sort of this rarefied air of like zero oversight on him. 
you know, Carlos Ghosn built huge amounts of credibility throughout his career by by being, you know, sort of level-headed and smart and serious-minded. And everybody started giving him the benefit of the doubt because he'd never been wrong in, in you know, 30 plus years. And when he's at the top of Nissan and the top of the Alliance, people just give him not less leeway, just increasing amounts of leeway and increasing amounts of the benefit of the doubt until people turn against him. And then they suddenly found that in the absence of oversight, Carlos Ghosn had done a bunch of very questionable things that that lead to his downfall. And the problem with Carlos Ghosn is he kind of believed that that it was his right to not be questioned. Who was his right to have his way? And, you know, if he thought something was right, you know, and the whole world was telling him that he shouldn't do it, then Carlos Ghosn was probably right. And he had been right in the past. It's just, there's this sort of hubris and pride that, that, that ultimately sort of clouds his decision-making. Can I, can I also like add one thing to, I I agree with Sean. I I think one thing that's always really struck me about Carlos Ghosn is, I think obviously, uh, as is clear from everything we've said, guy with enormous qualities, but also some big flaws. And one of them was this constant need for recognition. Um, his compensation is one, but there were there were there were others. Like even to the extent that he kept every news article, even short news articles, f- few paragraphs, written about him. And he has these in a box in his house. Um, and he would never forget them and he would and he would hold grudges and he would read everything and he just had this need for recognition and i you know i think obviously it's interesting to understand it you have to go back to the beginning of the story and what we were talking about at the start with the granddad and the father and you know being a kind of lebanese national in these french companies and i think that's probably where it comes from but i think that that in the end was was extremely damaging yeah the book is called Boundless, The Rise, Fall, and Escape of Carlos Ghosn by my guests today, Nick Kostov and Sean McLean, both of the Wall Street Journal. Uh, guys, I really enjoyed the book, and I appreciate your time. Thanks for joining me. Anytime. Thank you so much. Hey, everybody. If you like what we're up to here at Crazy Money, do us and yourself a favor by following the show on your favorite podcast app and subscribing to our YouTube channel. Also, click the link in the show notes to subscribe to my new Substack, where you'll get bi-weekly thoughts on the role of money in our world and in our lives directly to your email inbox. Thanks for sticking around. We'll see you next week.